0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. And so I want you to picture this scene. This is where we left off last week. I, if you want, you can kind of go full cinematic mode. You can think in terms of, of uh, you know, maybe a, a flying drone over. The outside of the city of Babylon. So you have this flying camera shot from outside the walls of the city of Babylon. It is nighttime, and as the the drone sweeps over the Euphrates River, you can see the gleam of the moon and the lights from the city reflecting in the water as the camera sort of pans, if you will, uh, getting closer and closer to the city. And next to the river, you can see tents and encampments of soldiers. You see fires burning outside of the city walls next to the river uh, along the mighty Euph- Euphrates. You can see soldiers that are, are stacked up and gathered by the walls of the city. Sort of looking up at the walls of these 40 foot walls that, that surround the city of Babylon. Babylon. And you think there's no way they, they can get over those walls to get in and invade. And as the, the camera continues to pan, you go over the walls of the city. And inside of the walls of the city, you see various dwellings. And people in the city are laughing. They're celebrating without care for the soldiers sitting outside the thick walls that surrounded them. They feel absolutely secure. The camera continues to fly past the hanging gardens. Towards what is obviously the palace, the dwelling of the king. And as you, you come up on the palace, you can see that the doors are open, and the camera sweeps in, and as you, you come into the palace there, you see a banqueting hall. And it's a giant hall, and it is filled with thousands of guests, some of them in various states of disarray. There are concubines and lords, and the wives of the king that are all gathered together. The air is thick with celebration. There's laughter. There's clinking of golden cups. There are over a thousand people in attendance, and you can just hear the buzz, the noise as everybody is celebrating, as they toast, they laugh, they bless the gods of wood and gold and stone, and silver, and iron. They proclaim their victory over the gods of all the nations around them, including the Hebrew God, Yahweh. But then suddenly, the mood shifts. A mysterious hand appears as if out of thin air. It's it's illuminated by this lamp that is on one side of the room and, and, and in between the lamp and the wall, this hand appears and it begins to scratch into the plaster on the wall, these words, and dust is falling down to the floor as these words are being etched into the wall as if by magic. The fingers from the hand begin etching the letters into the plaster wall and everybody begins to notice one by one, but the one who is most freaked out is the king himself. A man named Belshazzar. This this. Hand that's floating that is scratching letters into the plaster of the wall has everybody spooked but most of all is belshazzar he 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 falls back he reels back into his his seat he, his limbs won't hold him up any longer he is overwhelmed by what he sees and as he falls back he begins violently trembling he is so scared his knees begin knocking together and so he calls out he cries out in a panic he calls for the wise men and the enchanters and the magicians to help him understand this writing on the wall but it is all to no avail nobody can understand they can maybe read the words or maybe understand the letters but they can't understand its meaning no one can understand what it might mean suddenly the queen mother bursts in She comes in and she sees Belshazzar all pale and afraid. Here's the king of Babylon reeling, freaked out, knees knocking, pale-faced in the corner of the room. And perhaps with a hint of disdain for how weak and foolish the king looks, she begins to speak and she reminds Belshazzar of the presence of a humble Hebrew in their land one who has in the past been able to interpret dreams and visions for his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar and he reminds she reminds him you know if you if you had really understood your heritage you would know about this guy you would have called upon him already well daniel does get called Belshazzar Belshazzar calls for him and reminds him right off the bat, hey, remember, you're, you're one of the captives. You're a Hebrew slave who was hauled away here to Babylon. You do my bidding. He's still flexing his wannabe kingly muscles. And then he tells Daniel, hey, there's a reward for anybody who can interpret this. Don't you want the reward? Do what I say. Jump, monkey, jump. Dance for me like you're supposed to. Do this party trick and I'll reward you. You'll be the, the third highest on the, in the land. And when we left off the story last week, that is where we paused. And we stopped to consider the pride of Belshazzar. However, stopping there in the middle of the story leaves us with Questions? How will Daniel respond? What, what about the, the writing on the wall? What does, it, what does it actually mean? What does God want Belshazzar to know? God made a special appearance here at this party. He, he scratched a message to Belshazzar on the wall. What does he want him to know? All of those questions are left unanswered. And so now as we pick up the remainder of this chapter, I'd like for us to consider the two characters highlighted to us in these verses. Our outline for the remaining verses of chapter 5 will follow the responses of both Daniel and Belshazzar. So we're going to divide it up into two sections. First of all, Daniel in verse 17 rejects the reward of a perishing kingdom. Daniel rejects the reward of a perishing kingdom. And then verses 18 to 23, he reviews the king's failure to learn from the past. He reviews the king's failure to learn from the past. And then verses 24 to 28, he reads the decree of the king of kings. He reads the writing on the wall, the decree of the king of kings. And then the story shifts to Belshazzar in verses 29 to 31. Belshazzar, in verse 29, reacts with indifference. And then verses 30 and 31, he receives immediate retribution. So that's the flow of our outline today. It gives us some folders to put our thoughts into, some ways to think about the text as we work our way through it. Let's begin by reading, starting out in verse 17. Daniel now is in the the courtroom of, or is in the palace of the king, and he is about to respond to the king. Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. You see here that Daniel rejects the rewards that are being offered to him by this king. Now, that hasn't always been true in Daniel's past. Daniel was promoted under King Nebuchadnezzar, right? He was, he was brought to a place of, of power, which he used to the glory of God all throughout his service under King Nebuchadnezzar. I I wonder, as Daniel walked into the room, I wonder what would have been going through his mind. You know, there's there's concubines sort of, you know, uh, spread out throughout the room. They're probably not dressed very conservatively. There are uh, lords and the multiple wives of the king. There's some gold cups and dishes from the temple. Some of them still half filled with wine. And some of them in the hands of these pagans who are blessing and praising the gods of gold and silver. And the pale, cowering king sits in the center of the room and God has etched these four words in Aramaic on the wall. The place is a wreck. It looks like a redneck party has gone down. And it's a mess everywhere. I wonder, I wonder when the moment was that Daniel knew what God had written and what it meant. What moment was that? As he's walking in, he sees the mess of the party and then his eyes fall upon the writing on the wall and he reads the words there. At what point did the Holy Spirit make alive to him the understanding of what God intended there on the wall? You know, the Bible doesn't give us those details, but it does give us Daniel's response to the promise of reward from the king. Let your gifts be for yourself, And give rewards to another. Now, now why would Daniel reject the promise of reward? Why would he do that? I mean, he he took it with Nebuchadnezzar. Why why not now? Well, I mean, one possibility could just be his character and his humility. Like, I don't really need a reward. That's that's a possibility. Another possibility is that it, it it could have been. It could be that after having been in positions of power under Nebuchadnezzar. After already having been one of the highest people in the land, the promise of power no longer appeals to him. He's older in years now. He's like, man, uh, I know what happens when you get put in places of power. You have a lot of responsibilities. I'm kind of enjoying this season of life where I have less. and you know, like I, I have no need for your reward. That's another possibility. A third one, and I think probably the most likely, is that he knew what the writing on the wall meant. He knew what the interpretation was as soon as he saw it. And it could be that he said to himself, What good is a reward and a promotion from a kingdom that is perishing? What good does that do me? God has weighed this guy, found him wanting, and his kingdom is being given away. Now I'm going to be promoted to third person in the land. For what? It profits me nothing. You know, isn't this what Jesus really taught us when you think about it? Remember in the the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about storing up your treasures in heaven in a place where moth and rust do not destroy, like live for an eternal purpose, for an eternal kingdom, live for that why would you why would you store up only rewards in a place here that is perishing that is fading away that is going to be gone someday? Why would you not make all your investments in what is eternal? You see here's the reality guys. We do not have infinite resources. We do not have infinite time. We do not have infinite attention despite what social media th- makes us feel. The truth is we're finite, we're limited, and this means that we're going to have to make decisions about where we will make the greatest investments in life. And according to Jesus, we're supposed to make the investments in what is eternal. What good is a reward from a kingdom that is perishing? If we put all our eggs in this basket, oh man, it's all fading away. So then Daniel goes on to say, keep your rewards. Nevertheless, I will read to you the writing that was written to the king, and I will make known to you the interpretation. So Daniel says, I'm going to interpret the message for you. But first, I want to give you a little history lesson. I know what it says, and I I know what it means. But Daniel sort of monologues here for a moment. He says, "Okay, before I give you the interpretation, I want to give you a little bit of backstory here." And so in verses 18 to 23, Daniel reviews the king's failure to learn from the past. And he says in verse 18, "O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty." And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him. have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And, and, your, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God, in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Here Daniel speaks straight up to this king. He recounts the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And, and now look carefully at the claims being made by Daniel. In verse 18 he says, though you, though you have many gods that you worship, there is a Most High God. And he is the one who gave power and success and authority to Nebuchadnezzar. It's him. And then in verse 19 he says, The power given to him by God Most High gave him influence. And authority over all the world. And everyone feared Nebuchadnezzar. And then in verse 20, but pride put him, put him at odds with the one who gave him power in the first place. So God took him from his throne and removed the glory that God had given to him as a gift. And then in verse 21, and his humiliation lasted long enough to break him of his pride and to teach him that it is the most high God who took him from his throne. And it is the most high God who rules kingdom, all the kingdoms of mankind and sets over them who he wills. You know, as we're tracking the logic of Daniel here, we're, we're confronted with an uncomfortable truth, an uncomfortable reality. Babylon, and even more than that, Nebuchadnezzar, the king who conquered Jerusalem, the one who burned the temple, the one who killed God's people and carried away them, the, the, the members of Israel, the, the people of Judah captive and made them his slaves. That king is under the authority of God. They have been given power by God to do what they have done in conquering Israel, conquering God's people. Now equally true is the fact that they are held accountable by God for how they use this power. This power can be taken away, whenever. If God sees fit to take it away, he can do that. He can do that by by sending a nation stronger and mightier than them to, to remove their power and take away their authority. He could do that and they can be defeated in battle. Or, if he wants to, with laser-like accuracy, he can pinpoint the ruler himself and take away his sanity and make him eat grass like an ox. That's the kind of power and authority that God has. He rules over all. Now... But more than a lesson on the sovereignty of God or even the sovereignty of God over unrighteous nations, there's an expectation that is built into what Daniel is saying to Belshazzar. What he's saying to Belshazzar is, look, you saw this lived out in your predecessor. You saw this lived out in Nebuchadnezzar. You should have known You should have looked at his life, seen his story, and you should have known what was coming. You were on a crash course with God Most High. And your pride has gotten the best of you. You should have known. He should have been humble. He should have honored God. He should have had a more appropriate response to God's authority. He should have learned from his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar the king. And and he says to him, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And you drank from the vessels, you and your wives and your concubines and your lords you praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood and stone. Objects that don't even see. They can't even hear. But the very God in whose hand is your breath. The one who gave you life. The one who put you in the position of authority that you're in. Him you have mocked. It's in his hand that all your ways belong, Belshazzar, and you've not honored him. You know, it's been said that experience is the best teacher, but that not every experience has to be your own. Experience is a very good teacher, but not every experience has to be your own. Sometimes you can learn if you're wise by observation. You look at dum dums and you go, That looks like it hurt. I don't think I want to do that. You don't have to walk through the experience of being a dum dum in order to learn from dum dums. Am I right? You see, Belshazzar didn't need to learn things the hard way. As a matter of fact, it appears that God expected Belshazzar to learn from Nebuchadnezzar's lesson. He intended for it to be something that others would learn from. And the indictment here is that Belshazzar should have known better. He should have acted differently than he has. When we look back at the life of Nebuchadnezzar, we can see that he wrote down his testimony of how God humbled him, right? In the, the previous chapter of this, he says, I want everybody to know how God humbled me. I want everybody to know that he's the king, that he's the one who rules the universe. He's the king over all kings. I want everybody to understand that so that we know our place in this world. And Nebuchadnezzar wrote that down. Belshazzar, no doubt, has come in contact with this story. As a matter of fact, as soon as Daniel is brought to the forefront, Dan- Belshazzar is the one who Reminds Daniel of his origin, where he came from. He was familiar with the stories. He knew what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. But he didn't learn. Nebuchadnezzar wrote down his story in Daniel 4 so that what God had taught him about who really, really rules the world would be learned by all peoples and all nations, that people would learn from his experience. And it seems plain here that some of the guilt that Belshazzar bears is not just the sins that he committed, but the fact that he did that knowing full well God had authority to humble him. He bears guilt for what he knew and did not respond accordingly to. He bears guilt for not having learned the lesson. Hey, I want to pause here for just a moment. This is off the cuff. I didn't write this down. But I want to pause for just a moment here because I think there's something important it's on my heart. Uh, a lot of times, we are waiting for some sort of internal feeling to repent. We're, we're, we're waiting for... This internal pressure, emotional buildup to reach some sort of level where it finally tips over the side of the cup and we go, okay, enough pressure has been built. Now I, I, I need to repent. That's dumb. That's a dumb way to live. Listen, it's real, real simple. If the Holy Spirit brings conviction to your life and he points out something, if there is a lesson that you've already seen played out in the life of another, whether that be from scripture itself or maybe it's from somebody close to you, maybe you should look at that lesson, learn from it, apply it to your life before you have to feel the pinch of God's intervention in your life. How many troubles can be avoided If instead of waiting for internal unction, we respond in obedience in the moment. Well, this hits home for me in a couple of ways this morning. A couple of takeaways that I can grab from this. First of all, number one, I can teach from my own experiences. I can teach from my own experiences. You know, this last Friday was my spiritual birthday. I got saved 27 years ago. Uh, and in, I, I was at a service at Applegate Christian Fellowship. And I've put a reminder on my calendar and my phone that has uh, my spiritual birthday on it that, so that every year I can remember that moment. And then I found, I went back in the history, the archives of, Applegate's recorded teachings, and I found the actual teaching that I was sitting under where, when I got saved, when I, when I encountered the Lord. And so every year, I kind of make it this, this uh, habit to try and listen to that teaching again, just be reminded of what God brought me from, how he called me unto himself. I want to I have that, that story fresh in my mind. But this year, when it came up on the calendar, my immediate thought was, you know what? I need to, I need to send something out to my kids. I need to send something out to my family. I need to tell them what God has done for me. I want them to share in this. I want them to to learn from how God grabbed a hold of my life and what he's done since then, since yielding my life to him. I want them to see and learn from me. So I send a text out to my kids telling them how thankful I am that God intervened in my life. How he saved me. And as a matter of fact, as, through conversation, as we were texting back and forth, uh, I realized, you know, if God hadn't saved me, my kids wouldn't even exist. I would have never met my wife. would have never even had the family that I've had. We would have never lived the life that we've enjoyed together. And I, w- I want to encourage you in something. For those of you who have family and friends around you, tell your faith story often. Tell what God has been teaching you. Share that with one another. Open up your heart. Be be one of those people who's an open book to such a degree that it's just very commonplace for you to talk about how God is affecting you both presently and how he's changed you in the past. Share the lessons that you've learned. Be like Nebuchadnezzar. Let others learn from you. I can teach from my own experiences. You know... I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but entire books of the Bible are dedicated to that same reality. For example, Proverbs. I don't know if you know this, but Proverbs is a father writing down all the wisdom he's collected over his life to his son. Saying, learn from what I've been through. You don't have to take the dum dumb route. Okay? Just learn from me. That's his heart. So I can teach from my own experiences. second thing that I can take away from this is that I can learn from the experiences of, other, of others. And really, God expects both, doesn't he? Both that I would teach and that I would learn. So just th- thinking out loud here, I want to ask you some questions. What, what lessons have been lived out before you? I mean, for sure we can learn from the scriptures and the people who live throughout history, that's true. But what about something a little closer to home? What about the lessons taught to you within your own family? Have you learned from the poor choices or unresolved wounds of a father figure? Have you escaped repeating the unhealthy relational patterns of a broken mother situation? Have you learned to stop repeating the same behaviors that have caused so much damage in your own life? You see, to perpetuate the same sins that caused harm in the first place is just foolishness. And you know, God wants for every family to have a chain breaker. Somebody that comes in and says, you know what, I'm not going to repeat the sins of my father and the sins of my mother. I'm not going to repeat those patterns. I've seen the lessons learned in the past and I don't have to repeat them to know what is good for me. Just like Belshazzar Nebuch- should have learned from Nebuchadnezzar. Or what about the good lessons? What have you learned from the good in your family? Do you, do you glean from the good in your family tree? The things that were done right and the repairs that they made from previous generations. Did you learn the gentleness of a good father or the nurturing care of a wonderful mom? Did you see their example of faith and learn to pray like them, read like them, worship like them, love Jesus like them? Have you learned to walk in their footsteps because of the example set down for you? I can learn from the experiences of others. I don't have to take the dumb, dumb route. You see, Belshazzar here failed to learn from Nebuchadnezzar. And now he's being indicted by Daniel for his failure. Look what Daniel says to the king at the end of verse 23. God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Man, not only should the king have known, he should have honored God. And instead, he has greatly offended God by using the vessels from his temple to lift toasts and praises to the gods of gold and silver. And So to sum it up, as Daniel indicts, Belshazzar here, he says this number one, you failed to learn from history. Number two, you failed to humble yourself. Number three, you have blasphemed God and committed sacrilege towards the holy things from God's temple. And number four, you failed to honor the God who has sustained your life. You have greatly offended God. And now, God has come to hold Belshazzar to account. So Daniel then gives the interpretation to the king, beginning in verse 24 through 28. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, mine, mine, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mine, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting Perez your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians Daniel here gives the interpretation mine, mine, Tekel and Parson this message is really sums of money, Amina a mina, a shekel, and two halves. Those, that's the meaning of those words. It's the, the, the straight translation. It refers to units of measure. And the related verbal forms mean to number, to weigh, and to divide. So the surface meaning of the terms is clear enough, referring to the weights, in uh, the sense of currency but the puzzle that is significant the challenge in interpreting is what do those words mean? What do those nouns, those sums of money what do they mean? What is the intended purpose of writing those on the wall? And Daniel explains that the message that has been written on the wall means that he has been numbered he has been weighed and he's being divided. The form of Parson, by the way, notice the parson changes to perez in the text below. I don't know if you caught that. Uh, that's because the form parson is understood as plural or, or dual, and Daniel uses only the singular perez when he gives the interpretation, and there's a reason why. The word perez, which is a singular ver- version of parson, also sounds in the Aramaic like divided. And Persia at the same time, so he uses a sort of a double entendre there with uh, with the way that he uses the words, and so he says to the king, "Your days are numbered you 've been weighed and found lacking. your kingdom is divided, and it has been given to the Medes and the Persians. What a moment I mean you just think like this is full on." you know, a, a John Wayne moment for, for Daniel. He's standing there in the face of the king and he says, here's what it means. You, your days are numbered. Your kingdom's going to be given to somebody else. You've been weighed in God's scale and you've been found lacking. He doesn't like you. Your kingdom is about to be divided and handed over to the Medes and Persians who are right outside the city walls. What a powerful, powerful moment. What a display of faithfulness and integrity to the word of God that Daniel displays here. It makes me wonder, <coughs> what, if, what if Jesus took you to heaven right now at this moment boom what if today was your day of reckoning and what if just just moments from now he showed the film of your life and began examining every thought every intention every motive every eventual action that was the fruit of those motives What if he used a screen similar to the one behind me, this giant LED screen, and he just treated it like a a, a giant cell phone and he began scrolling through your life, pausing on certain moments so that you could see his assessment. What moments do you wish he would scroll past? Or what moments do you want him to pause? Maybe do a little double tap. Hey, I like that. What moments would you feel ashamed of? What would you feel is left undone? Like, God, I was going to get to that. I know you've been convicting me about that for a while and I I just didn't take any action. I was waiting for that internal unction to come. I just never dealt with that like you wanted me to. What immediate issues come to mind right now in your heart is the unresolved things that God wants to deal with. Now imagine, imagine for a moment that after reviewing this slideshow with you, Christ then pulled out a scale or a balance. And so you ask him, you say, hey, what, what's that for? And he responds, well, it's a scale that weighs the life of a person and you you ponder what it will look like when he weighs your life. I mean, you just got done reviewing the highlights reel with him. What would you put as a percentage? I mean, how would you weigh that out? You'd say, well, it's like, you know... It's like 30% bad, 70% good. Are, are you hoping that the scales just sort of get tipped? Like, I just hope that the, the good outweighs the bad, that I've done enough good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff. Is, is that what you're hoping for? Is it a 60-40 split? What would your best guess be of how you imagine that split going? I mean, what, really, what's, what's, what's your honest number right now? Just have it in your head right now. What's the honest number? What's the split in your life? You go, this percentage of my life was disobedient and rubbish. And this percent was redeemable and good and for the glory of God. You got it in your head? What that number is? Okay, now imagine then that Jesus begins to load the scales and you're surprised by the fact that he does not put your good on one side and your bad on the other. Instead, the standard by which your life is weighed is the cumulative spiritual weight of the life that God has designed for you to live versus the life you have actually lived. So on one side of the scale is all of God's intention. The potential for you to bring glory to him through your existence is all on one side of the scale. And on the other side of the scale is the sum total of your life. And and it is decreased in weight by how much you did not give glory to God. Every thought, every action, everything that has taken place over the course cumulatively of your life. Does that change the number that you had, that percentage that you were thinking? Because that's the reality. That is, that is the reality of judgment. We are not weighed by the good against the bad that we have done. Our lives are weighed against the life that we were designed to live totally for God's glory. This is the reality that King Belshazzar is now facing. And as we finish Daniel 5 today, these verses confront us with the reality that our lives are laid bare before the one who sees, who knows all. That our lives are lived in his presence, before his face. And that when we stand before him, the question is, what degree did we not give God glory? And there is judgment that is due for that. We're all confronted with the sovereign king of kings to whom every person shall give an account for the life that they have lived. A life that they've lived in the presence of the one who gave them that life in the first place, in whose hand is our very breath, in whose hand is my very breath. I will give an account to God for that reality. The one who purposed them to live for his glory, for his kingdom is the one who assesses their lives on his righteous and true scales. Now, our great temptation whenever we're reading a story like the one we're reading today is to always put ourselves in the hero slot. When we read the scriptures, we're like, oh, I'm like Daniel. I'm the believer against the unbeliever. And, you know, I... That's how we like to picture things. And Sometimes we do it in other places in the Bible too. Like sometimes we picture ourselves as Paul the Apostle or, or you know, one of the disciples or sometimes even as Jesus. But that really prevents us from seeing how powerful the gospel is in this moment. You see, Romans 3.23, when Paul was writing about failing to live up to the glory of God, he says, For all have sinned and fall short. Of the glory of God. Now the thing about a scale is. If you let off a little bit of weight. On the one side. What happens to the other side? It sinks. Just a little bit of weight. That's all it takes. A slight imbalance. A slight indifference. In other words. We are. Belshazzar. In the story. We've all sinned. The scales are all tipped. And what God said to Belshazzar could be said to all of us. Your days are numbered. You've been weighed and found lacking. Your kingdom is divided and it's given away. You're taking nothing with you. So if that is the accurate way that God brings judgment. How do we escape that? How do we get around that? I mean, his scales are perfectly balanced. They're they're righteous, they're true, there's no cheating them. How do we get around that? Well, the answer is God tips the scales for us. How? For those who have put their faith in Christ, his obedience is accounted towards our side of the scale. He puts all of Christ's obedience on our side of the equation. And he weighs out then the righteousness that we should have lived against the righteousness which Christ did live. And he accounts his righteousness to us. The the life of righteousness he lived is accredited to us and in addition to that Christ also pays the penalty to redeem us from the ways that we did not live to the glory of God. So that our righteousness exceeds the requirements. Oh how great the gospel is. On one side of the scale is the life God intended for us to live, and on the other side is the obedience of Christ and the payment of Christ for our sin. Can you see how we are wholly dependent upon the grace of God? How there's no way that we can earn this on our own? We are absolutely, desperately in need of Christ. Can you see how that works? The only way for the scales to be tipped in our favor is if they are weighed with the obedience and the forgiveness of Christ applied to our lives. And isn't what Jesus did good news to us now? As we consider that reality, you know Belshazzar hears the word from Daniel. He stands under the weight of his own guilt, and the finger of God has has written his judgment on the plaster on the wall. Now the question is, how will Belshazzar respond? What will he do? Verse 29 tells us, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. How did he respond? Well, the scriptures record that Belshazzar rewards Daniel anyway. Daniel didn't even want the reward. Daniel told him to keep his reward, but he does it anyway. Why? Because it appears that he's still concerned about looking good to others. That's what he's most concerned about, not what God wrote on the plaster, on the wall. He stays true to his word that he would reward Daniel and proclaims that Daniel is the third highest in the land. By the way, that's a nod to the fact that he is not the highest in the land, even though he bears the title king. He's a puppet king, a wannabe king, while his dad is off in a foreign land. He can't give away the second position because he's in the second position. See how that works? He promises it to Daniel. There is no record of contrition. There is no record of mourning. He did not tear his clothes. He did not throw ashes on his head. He did not repent. Just absolute indifference to the reality that he is going to be judged by God and that the medes and the persians are at the gates of the city at that exact moment. I want to pause here again, not in my notes off the cup here. I want to say this. If you're here today and you have not repented, you have not put your faith in Jesus, do not wait. This is the moment. Where God is calling you unto himself. The only hope of tipping the scales is your trust in what Jesus has accomplished for you on the cross. That is the only hope that you have. And the call is to see that reality and be broken by it. To look at that truth and go, I wholly need Christ. I cannot live apart from him. There is nothing good that I can offer God to make up for the bad that I've done. The the scales are already tipped. I need Jesus to come. I need him to save me. That is the only hope that we have. Well, for Belshazzar, how sad. He's unmoved. What a shame to see that Belshazzar had all the opportunity in that moment to be broken, to cry out for the mercy of God after hearing what was spoken. He has this impending encounter with the judge of all the earth and he did nothing with it. And he stands as a warning to us all today. If you hear his voice, God is speaking to you. Do not harden your heart. Today is the day to decide. Today is the moment where you have to decide will I live for God and for His glory or will I not? Will I wholly put my trust in Christ or will I not? So, Belshazzar hardens his heart. What is left for God to do? Only to fulfill His word. In verses 30 to 31, Belshazzar receives immediate retribution. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. You know, the illusion of permanence is busted by the hand of God here. Belshazzar thought he would last forever, that his kingdom would last forever, and that's all shattered now. He thought much of himself, and it came to little. He thought much of his kingdom, and it was overthrown in a night. He thought much of his life and his position, but he would lose both within the same evening. All gone. The Medes and the Persians who had encamped around the walls of Babylon were being led by a defector whose son had been killed by Belshazzar on a royal hunting trip. Most likely, the name Darius here, or Darius... The Mede can be equated with Gubaru, the governor of Babylon who was appointed by Cyrus and the same one who used to serve in the king's court in Babylon and whose son was killed by Belshazzar. He took revenge on Belshazzar for the death of his son and led the army under his leadership the army diverted the mighty river Euphrates into a swamp and that lowered the water levels and the water of the Euphrates used to go under the t- the, the city walls of Babylon and as the water level lowered, the, the armies went in underneath the walls rather than going over the top. They went directly to the palace. They killed the king and not another shot was fired. That was the end of the Babylonian era True to the promises of God in that moment. The head of gold replaced by the arms and the chest of silver. Just like God had said. When the armies came into the palace, they came into a room with writing on the wall signaling that this would be the night that it would happen. Imagine that. In the next chapter, you'll see Daniel hanging out with Darius. Apparently they became friends after that moment. Yet it is not only Belshazzar who's been weighed in the balance and found wanting. His gods too have also failed the test. Belshazzar praised the gods of wood and stone and silver ascribing to them glory and honor and yet the gods could not keep the Lord's messenger from disturbing the peace of his feast. Nor could they keep him safe from the Medes and the Persians, nor could they sustain the Babylonian empire, They all failed. And when all is said and done, we should walk away seeing the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. We see him declaring what will happen in the future long before it does. There's layers of sovereignty here in this chapter. We see God's promise to Nebuchadnezzar that that his kingdom would not last being fulfilled in this moment. We see God's superiority over the false gods of Babylon. We see God's promises attached to the items in the temple and saying, I'm going to protect those and I'm going to bring them back and you'll worship once again in my holy city. We see God's promise to raise up Cyrus from Isaiah 44 and 45 and to cause him to be able to give the decree that the people can return to their land at the end of 70 years. We see God's promise to bring Israel back to their land from Jeremiah 27 through 29. The sovereign God, zealous for his name and his temple, humbles any nation, ruler, or man that exalts himself in pride. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Our actions can can deafen our responsiveness to God's voice, but we should learn from the humiliation of Belshazzar to humbly recognize our place in God's world. We must not deceive ourselves to our own ruin and to the ruin of others by denying our need for a holy God. I love what Peter Ulrich said a couple of weeks ago in our study he said, being humbled before God will cost you less than being humbled by God. Amen? Would you pray with me as the worship team comes up to close us in worship? Father, there's much to take away from this passage. You know, all of us are, are little mini kings and queens of our own kingdom. We think that we hold the reins of control in our lives and it just takes one little small event, a health crisis, a financial woe, an unexpected thing to pop up, and all of a sudden we realize we are not in control. May we live with that awareness. May we live entrusting ourselves to the sovereign king who rules over all the earth. Our only hope in life and death is that we belong, body, soul, and spirit, to you. May we live in humble dependence and appreciation, giving thanks to you always for all things. May we surrender our hearts at the slightest touch of your spirit. May we long to be wholly consecrated unto you and to fight for holiness. May we be those, Father, because of the working of your spirit in us, for the moment we hear your voice or see the example of truth, we respond with action and obedience and repentance. That we might live lives consecrated unto you. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your son. The scales of justice have been tipped our way so that we might stand Not in our own righteousness, which is filthy, but in the righteousness of Christ. So thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the encouragement today. Meet us now as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.